everybody, welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be discussing Season 4, Episode 17, It's a Terrible Life, written by Sarah Gamble and directed by James L. Conway. It's the first of four episodes that he will direct for the series. All the rest of them are in like the first half of Season 5. He's got a really unique and interesting style of directing, and it fits very well with these odd episodes, these concept episodes like this one. So we're glad to have him. The title of this one is obviously a play on It's a Wonderful Life, with a sort of inverse concept of it, though, of Dean having his memories of his life wiped and being pushed to make all the choices he would have anyway, as opposed to having his existence erased from reality and having to see his own worth and value in relation to reality. So not quite the same, but similar concept. And angels mucking with things. If you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, it's kind of hard to explain the subtle differences, but hopefully everybody's at least passingly familiar with it. Dean is dropped into a situation where he would be nudged into learning about the supernatural with Sam as the useful sidekick in the adventure. Because I'm sorry, Sam's role in this one is interesting, but I'm not even sure how much of it Sam will remember or internalize. This lesson is primarily for Dean. Sam's already on the exact path the angels want him on anyway. You know, he's drinking demon blood. He's stopped resisting. Ruby has him sorted for the most part. And the angels just had to break Dean in the previous episode. And now they're attempting to rebuild him into what they want him to be for them. Or to at least be prepared to accept whatever it is that comes his way. The angels have a very long history and... Chuck does as well, of trying to force choices on the Winchesters and having it go horribly wrong for them. Like, they always seem to learn the exact opposite lesson that the angels want them to, but this is a good iteration of that for us to understand it as a baseline for a concept that will be used through the rest of the series. So I'm going to talk a lot about that as we go through the episode. We get the ghost facers playing their roles in the apocalypse with Sam and Dean learning how to hunt from their YouTube channel, which is hilarious and deeply ironic, which is how a lot of Sam's role in this episode feels as well. Like the angels have dismissed him and are just sort of mocking him here or looking down their noses at him. But largely, the episode continues to build on those themes of free will versus destiny And the lessons the cosmic powers are trying to drive home to Dean with very little return on the investment until much, much later in the series, like season 15 later in the series, when they finally get Dean to give in. But we'll find time to complain about the series finale as well, so I'm sure I'll throw some of that in here. The rest of the meta yammering I can do can wait until we go through the episode, but there are a few extra bits to share from this episode as well. My meta tag for this one is only like four pages of stuff and about half of its gift sets, which are fun and cute, not heavy duty reading. But there are a bunch of posts on my blog from this episode. And rather than just list them all, I figured with such a short tag, just go through and read everything if you want it. (laughs) I did it this morning. It took me like an hour. We do have the blue revisions script with a special extra. We have the director's handwritten notes 
peppering the whole script. So it's a lot of fun and interesting to see what the director's thoughts are as he's planning each scene and giving the actors advice and instructions about how to carry certain things off and the emotional requirement of a scene. And some of it's really interesting. So if you're interested in scripts at all, this one is particularly fun this time. We have a link to the Ghost Facers instructional video on YouTube that Sam and Dean were watching throughout this episode, and I will link to that. We have a CW promo video for this episode, which I can only imagine how how it must have hit the viewing audience when they had to mull it over for an entire week, like what on earth is going to be happening in the next episode. We do have an interview that TV Guide did with A.J. Buckley, who of course plays Ed Zedmore of the Ghost Facers, from right around the time that this episode aired. I think that's enough to be going on with. Let's go right to the then segment. The opening question this episode reminds us of is Dean asking Cass, why would an angel rescue me from hell from 4-1? And Cass replying, because we have work for you. And then we cut to some of that work of Dean hunting and then getting clobbered by Alistair in the previous episode. Followed up with Dean in his hospital bed in the previous episode asking Cass if it's true. Did I break the first seal? And yes, unfortunately, Dean did. And then Cass tells him, our fate rests with you. The righteous man who starts it is the only one who can finish it. And Dean, with his eyes closed, saying, find someone else. It's not me. And then it cuts to now. And if you'll notice, there was absolutely nothing. There's not even Sam standing in the background of a shot anywhere in that then segment. It's all about Dean, like most of the rest of this episode. Yeah, Sam's there playing his role. He's being Samly, but it's like the angels did all of this just to wear down Dean. Because right now, he's the one who's not willing to play his role. But then we cut to now which feels entirely confusing at first. We see a hand turning off an alarm clock in his pinstripe pajamas and the kinks, well-respected man, is playing. You know, that's probably a song that Dean would dig just based on the era in which it was released. But then everything gets very confusing. Is this like a monster that's taken on Dean's likeness? Is this some sort of doppelganger situation? Who is this person? Because it's like the anti-Dean putting on his suit in his fancy apartment with his stainless steel appliances and going outside and with his briefcase to his Prius, changing the radio station from rock music to NPR. Like, who is this person? When he gets to his office and we see the sign on the door that says Dean Smith, Director of Sales and Marketing, we are all really even more confused. He's doing his job, he's typing business letters, he's handling calls, he's practicing golf in his office with his little putting mat. He's eating salad for lunch, like, enthusiastically, laughing with a friend of his in the office about Project Runway. Very late at night after the office is supposedly shut down for the day, he's still at his desk talking to somebody about the master cleanse because his sedentary lifestyle is... All these things that we think of as being not Deanish, he's doing and seemingly happy about it in this episode. And over the years, I'm going to take a little detour here because we need to cover how I look at Dean in this episode. 
Over the years, there's been a lot of interpretation of this as being some sort of, oh, if only Dean hadn't been burdened by hunting as a child, he would have grown up to be this happy guy. And I'm just like watching this episode going, who the hell thinks he's happy like this? It's just as much of a performance when we talk about performing Dean as any of his other performances are. When he goes in and pretends to be a newspaper reporter or pretends to be whatever for a case or pretends to be the womanizing macho everything slides off of him guy who a lot of people assume is the entirety of Dean as a human being. And it's just as sad and empty that he's someone who we know loves food and derives a great deal of pleasure from his comfort foods. And yet his fridge is empty here. He's a guy who loves his family deeply, but the way he passes off his family relationships when he's talking to Sam about them later in this episode, it just feels hollow and sad. And we don't even see him have any close friends in this episode. It just seems so antithetical to everything I know that actually makes Dean happy. So, no, I don't think this is what Dean would be like in a world where he'd never been raised as a hunter. I don't think that at all. If he was raised in a world where he was encouraged to seek out things that made him happy, I don't think he would have chosen this life either. Which makes it kind of easy for him to reject it when that's the final choice he's faced with at the end of the episode. It does take him a while to get there. He doesn't want to give up the comfort, maybe, of his life he's got here as Dean Smith. But even a $50,000 bonus offer isn't enough to hold him to this life. He could have chosen that and probably been pushed harder and harder out of it by the angels, but they expected Dean to say, yeah, I've got this life, but it's not what I want. I've got other things I need to do, something that I think is really important. He returns to hunting and he chooses that. He's pushed to make that choice. Not that he's upset about choosing it. He's quite upset about how he feels physically when Zachariah restores his memories He's upset that he's starving, (laughs) you know? He's been starving himself thinking that he's making good life choices. And it's like he's been depriving himself of something that he feels comfort from the whole time he was in this reality. The whole Dean Smith is more Dean's true personality to me is like, no, this is the personality Zachariah installed over Dean's base character because it was easy to manipulate him with it. And that's it. So we'll talk about each of these things as it comes up throughout the episode, but I needed to state that as a baseline. He leaves the office for the day, packs a bunch of files in his briefcase, and even though it's after dark and he's been there since bright and early that morning, he's still taking work home with him. He's even still on his phone as he gets on the elevator to leave. He doesn't even notice there's someone else on the elevator until he feels that person staring at him uncomfortably. And we pan over and reveal it's Sam in a yellow Sandover tech support polo shirt. Dean looks back for a minute and tries to like dismiss him and Sam just keeps staring. He's like, do I know you? Dean's like, I don't think so. Sam insists, you you look really familiar. Dean keeps looking at his phone and trying to ignore Sam and he's like, yeah, save it for the health club, pal. Like, this is not the appropriate place to flirt or whatever the hell it is you're doing, but it's creepy, not at work. And then Dean gets out of the elevator, 
and Sam just stands there looking slightly confused, like trying to still place where he knows Dean from. And then we cut to the title card. So we have the premise set up in a really odd way. We know who these characters are. How come they don't seem to know who they are? And therein lies the real mystery of the episode, not the hunt they're going to have to end up working on together. It's why are they in this situation in the first place? Why do they think they're Dean Smith and Sam Wesson? Why do they think they're completely different people? Why have they never heard of hunting? After the title card, we return with what we will come to know as the little bumper between scenes of something coming out of the copy machine, something going into a scanner, pencil being sharpened that become cut scenes throughout the episode. It's just so unsupernaturally, and I love it, because this episode is real. None of what's happening in this episode is fake. It's not a case Zachariah invented and a fake ghost that he brought in for them to, to solve the mystery. He sent them to where there was really a case. This is a real office with real people who work here, who are really being affected by this ghost. And yet only Sam and Dean seem to be interested in seeing that and solving the problem. After that little bumper scene, we go to the tech support cubicle farm where Sam Wesson answers yet another call. He's basically got the most boring tech support job ever. Have you tried turning it off and back on again? And while he is, he's tapping the head of a vampire bobblehead, like a Dracula bobblehead with his pen. He is really bored at this job. And I don't blame him. I would be too. As soon as Sam hangs up on that... One of his associates rolls across the room and starts asking him what he thinks of another woman that works in the office. And Sam is discouraging him from pursuing dating with her. Sam is like, dude, that is totally age inappropriate and like probably inappropriate, inappropriate. I don't we never know who this woman is. But his associate is the only one in this office not wearing the yellow polo shirt, not cleanly shaven. He's the rule violator. Oddly, he's wearing plaid. So that whole rule in Supernatural, you know, if you wear plaid, you're safe. Well, he was safe until he changed out of the plaid. Sam's friend asks him to come take a coffee break with him, and they invite their friend Paul to come with them. But Paul is extremely stressed. He refuses to even, like, look up at them. He's working. He's busy. And apparently this is out of character for Paul, who would normally have come along with them. Sam's friend Ian informs Sam that Paul had been busted for surfing porn on the internet the day before, got sent up to HR, and they put, quote, the fear of God into him, which is why he's now extremely compliant with the rules and only focused on work. Which, when you think about it, is sort of like finding out that someone got sent up to heaven for angel reprogramming, isn't it? As we all know now, way in the future. But we're about to see that happen in a few episodes to an angel we know and love. In that sense, this was a really interesting case for Zachariah to have picked for Sam and Dean to be stuck in during this episode. The ghost reprograms people to only care about the company and then to self-destruct if they fail. So honestly, that's kind of what angel reprogramming looks like when you think about it. They step into the break room, which also has a supplies cabinet and Ian stops off to pocket several packages of pencils. 
he's just randomly stealing from work because he can. He's that kind of guy. Ian pesters Sam to hear about more of his dreams, which apparently are wild and entertaining. And Sam rolls his eyes and he's like, I never should have told you about them in the first place. Grudgingly, he tells Ian in a very sort of flat voice about his most recent dream. He dreamt he saved a grim reaper named Tessa from demons, which we know is the plot from two episodes ago. They did save a grim reaper named Tessa from demons, but there was a lot more to it than that. Sam rolls his eyes again as Ian cracks up laughing at him. Ian's like, oh my god, that is classic. How much D&D did you play when you were a kid? Like, how did you get this warped to have such weird-ass dreams? And Sam has no, well, it's actually my life that I lived, and I'm being mocked and pestered with it by angels now in whatever alternate state I've been stuck here in with no memories. But I clearly still have access to some of my memories to dream about them. Ian then goes on to mock him further, saying, Oh my god, you're a hero. Thank god we've got Harry Potter here to save us from the apocalypse. Knowing the full realization of season four, and that the angels were setting this whole thing up because Dean already started the apocalypse, and now it's Sam's job to break the last seal and free Lucifer. Sam still thinks he's there to save them from that. And even in this state with no memories... His dreams are still pushing him toward that. They're validating his choices to continue to corrupt himself with the demon blood, to continue to work with Ruby, to think that he's on the right path because he is and he's had doubts about it. But the angels are just finally giving him their stamp of approval via his experiences in this episode. And Like I said before, I don't even know how much of any of this Sam remembers or internalizes because we never hear about it again afterwards. But it would have been so interesting to know that, like, I only had vague memories of this entire thing or this two weeks under angel mind control made me feel X, Y, Z about my current path. We just never hear any of that from Sam or Dean again. So... While this episode seemed very important in solidifying how we, the audience, see their current mission, when you look back in retrospect, it tells you an awful lot about the entire mechanism of season four and how the angels and eventually Chuck, since, I mean, we meet him in the next episode after this, kind of feels prophetic in a way, but how the whole story is manipulated around them through the entire series. So... I just don't know how much it affects the characters going forward, you know? We get our little copy machine, scanner, pencil sharpener montage, and then we're back at the cubicle farm later that afternoon. Sam is filling out paperwork, but he is clearly bored at his desk. He yawns really hard, rests his forehead against his hand, and we see flashes of previous episodes. We've seen him fighting monsters and shooting demons, and then we see a flash of him watching Dean behead a vampire, and that wakes Sam up completely. He's like, holy crap, I know where I've seen that guy. I see him in my dreams. And it's almost like the angels are using Sam's known power of visions and whatever allows him to use his demonic powers to nudge him into nudging Dean around into helping him investigate. 
But also, let's think for a minute. This is the first episode in how long where Sam experiences absolutely zero craving for demon blood? And is that just because the angels really don't know about Sam drinking the demon blood? Or is it because Zachariah does know and doesn't care, but also is not going to burden Sam with that during this time when he is supposed to be somebody else who knows nothing about the supernatural? I don't know. But I feel so bad for Sam that he got this little reprieve and then had to go back to it when we know he hates it, when we know that it's like a drug addiction to him. At least we get this one little island of reprieve for him in season four. At the end of the day, Sam gets on an elevator that's already populated with a handful of other people and Dean again. Sam just looks at Dean across the elevator and Dean looks at Sam like, oh no, please don't. Not again, not this guy. They reach the next stop and everybody else gets off, but Sam and Dean continue on the elevator. Sam goes about this very awkwardly. He just will not let it go. He's like, can I ask you a question? And Dean's like, uh, you know, I already told you, man, I don't do the, uh, I don't do the what? I don't do the office relationships. I don't do the gay thing. Like, and Sam's like, come on, I don't either. We don't know what Dean was implying with that, but they leave it wide open for interpretation. But Sam's like most awkwardly asking Dean, what do you think about ghosts? When Dean's like really confused by this question and is like, to tell you the truth, I haven't really given it much thought. It's kind of like, oh dear, Dean, your entire life has given it a lot of thought. Poor baby doesn't have any of those memories. Sam replies, what about vampires? Dean's like, what? What are you talking about? This is the most awkward elevator ride for poor Dean. Sam explains that he's been having some weird dreams lately. He asks Dean, you know what that's like, right? And Dean's like, uh, no, not really. And just wants this conversation to end desperately. And Sam's like, so you've never had any weird dreams? And Dean's like, no, but I'm going to give you some personal advice. You overshare. We get our little inter-office montage again of the pencil sharpener and all that. And then we're back in the cubicle farm the next day. Ian's still wearing his own personal clothes, the only one not wearing the Sandover yellow polo shirt. And Sam is having basically the same tech support conversation about turning it off and then back on again as he was the previous day. Up on his computer monitor is a productivity report. And yet he's drawing on a yellow legal pad, faces of monsters just like doodly sketching. And it's not half bad. It's definitely better than his sketch of the guy with the wolf tattoo from bedtime stories when he was trying to draw the big bad wolf. Because <laughs> that was hilarious. But these, these are actually pretty decent sketches of monster faces. While he's on the phone, Sam looks around and then searches the web for vampires. Like he's trying to find information about real vampires. He finds some image files and looks at vampire fangs, and none of them look like what we know as viewers of Supernatural. Real vampire fangs look like in their universe. They're all just like what we think of as Dracula fangs, you know. Sam quickly closes the window when Ian rolls up behind him again and asks Sam if he also got a message from Human Resources. Apparently, Ian has been dinged by HR just the way Paul was the previous day. Sam tells him he's probably getting busted for stealing office supplies, and Ian's like, 
not even treating this seriously. He's like, oh, I hope they spank me. He's not even taking a threat to his job and employment seriously. Yet he's going up to report to HR anyway. After he leaves, Sam was considering going back to looking at his vampire pictures, but closes out of that because he hears Paul going, no, 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 please don't do this to me. And Sam gets up and goes over to try and help him. Paul's telling Sam, my computer froze and when I rebooted, all my work was gone. A whole day's worth of work was gone. And Sam's like, yeah, they're crap that they do this all the time. And asks Paul if he saved a backup of his work. And Paul's like, no, I wish I'd backed up, but no. And now he's desperately trying to find a whole day's worth of work that just got erased from his computer. Sam tries to convince Paul that it's going to be okay, that things like this happen, and we'll deal with it. It's okay. You'll be fine. It's not the end of the world. But poor Paul does not see it that way. He just grows more and more desperate. Very late that night, after everybody else in the office has gone home, poor Paul is still there desperately trying to salvage his work that the computer ate. And at this point, it's kind of like... Geez, Paul, it probably would have been easier to just recreate all the work rather than struggling this long to try and recover it. You know what I mean? Just do it again. But that does not seem to be a factor for poor Paul, who finally accepts defeat as his computer tells him no files found. Like his entire computer got erased. He's like, oh no, all my work, it's gone. I've failed. And as soon as he says that, we hear the whooshy ghosty noise and we see a cold puff of breath come out of Paul's mouth like he's being bugged by a ghost. Savvy supernatural viewers will identify quickly. A drastic change seems to come over Paul. He gets up and rather robotically and methodically walks to the break room, grabs a couple of plastic forks and snaps off all the tines, jams them in the microwave's latch so that the microwave thinks it's shut, sets the timer for 10 minutes, sticks his head in the microwave and presses start and just calmly microwaves his own head as we pan up to see, don't heat up your fish here. It stinks. Thank you. Paste it above the microwave. And then that little ding, the microwave letting us know that Paul is done (laughs) as it cuts to black. It's incredibly out of character. We already knew his behavior from earlier that day or the day before even was out of character where he was just, I have to work. Sam and Ian have made it clear to us that this was not who Paul was as a person. He's acting out of character, like several other people in this building we know, like Sam and Dean, whose out of character behavior has not become clear to us. Like, were they on a ghost hunt? And this ghost has also affected them into thinking that they're good business people or something? Like, what on earth is going on here? The next morning, all of the cubicle people are standing by and watching as their friend is wheeled out by the corners. And Sam looks over and sees Dean and another guy in a suit who is only addressed as suit in the script. But he's the same guy that Dean was talking to about Project Runway in the cold open to this episode. So it's clearly an associate of Dean's from upstairs. And commentary has been made in the past about how this guy sort of bears a resemblance to Cass with slightly messy dark hair, the blue tie and the business suit. And this is really the only time we ever see Dean interacting directly with the guy. But it's almost like he's there to be the stand in for Cass, Dean's little buddy. Dean meets Sam's eyes across the room and Sam's like, is this weird enough for you? Like, 
I asked you if you thought about ghosts. Well, what do you think about this? This is not normal. And Dean, his whole physical attitude towards the situation changes from concern and, you know, I'm upper management, so I'm here to observe, to, yeah, this really isn't normal. So Sam becomes this catalyst for Dean exploring the unnatural things going on around them here in a way that nobody else in the building does. Dean asks the guy standing beside him with the blue tie if something about all of this doesn't seem right to him. And the guy's like, yeah, how about everything? I'll never eat popcorn again. And Dean's like, yeah, right. Yeah, it's like, let's blame it on the microwave for this weirdness. And it's funny that eventually we will actually see cats eat popcorn in Canada. But that's not what Dean meant at all. He's now curious about this guy. What would drive somebody to kill themselves like that? He looks up the guy's record. Paul Dunbar had been working there at Sandover since 1979. There's a note in his file saying he was two weeks away from his retirement party. And yet this is how he chooses to go out. Sam also finds this curious. Unlike the previous few days in the office where we saw Ian roll his chair over to Sam and bother Sam, Sam is now rolling his chair over to Ian because Ian even has his little headset on and his yellow polo shirt and he's working away at his computer. Sam's musing out loud, isn't it weird? Why would he kill himself two weeks before he's supposed to retire? He was going to be free from all of this. Ian tells Sam that he doesn't have time for this. He's working. It's important. And he answers a tech support call. And Sam's still processing that Ian's wearing the required shirt. He's shaved. He looks like he's trying to follow all the rules now. You know, he was teasing Ian about all of this new behavior. But Sam's finally starting to process that this is more than just Ian trying to be a good worker. It's like a personality transplant. Ian's call, though, was from Dean Smith up in sales on the 22nd floor because apparently he messed up on a form he filed and Dean needs him to correct it. Dean's like, yeah, there's just a little error here because of the new system. I assume you're used to filling out a different form. And can you just redo this so I can in, you know, get on with invoicing it today? Instead of just being like, yes, sir, I'll get right on that right now, Ian takes it personally as if he has failed in every conceivable fashion. He's going on and on like he's about to break into tears over having failed the company and how he's a failure. And Dean's trying to calm the guy down. He's like, it's okay. And Ian just goes bolting out of the office. Dean follows after him because this is odd behavior from anybody, even if he doesn't know how Ian was the day before, you know? Dean finds Ian staring at himself in the mirror of the washroom down the hall. As Dean's trying to calm the situation down, Dean's breath comes out in a cloud of cold fog. And then all the water taps turn on and then all the soap dispensers start dispensing soap. This is freaking Dean out, and he's like, Ian, come on, maybe we should get out of here. Come on. He can't even get a response from me, and he's finally like, look at me. Ian turns and looks at him. He's like muttering something under his breath, reaches into his pocket and grabs a pencil and stabs himself in the neck with it. As Dean runs over to assist the guy, he sees what looks like the reflection of an old man watching on, turns around, and there's nothing there as Ian just bleeds out. And then Dean finally calls out for help. 
The next shot is of Dean in the hallway talking to two police about what he had seen. And just like before, he sees Sam looking from across the room. Sam, who had probably followed Ian up to the 22nd floor, knowing that something wasn't right with his friend. Sam was on the scene. Dean doesn't really know how to explain what he's seen, but he sees Sam and realizes this guy, who I keep running into in these weird circumstances, may know something about what the hell is going on here. We get the little pencil sharpener montage, and then we're back at Sam's desk, where he answers a call that's from Dean. Sam gets up to his office, and Dean is changing his shirt. It's clearly the end of the day. Sam's got his satchel with him. Dean invites him in and tells him to shut the door. He doesn't want anyone else around to overhear this weird-ass conversation he's expecting to have here. He asks Sam, who the hell are you? And Sam answers, I'm not sure I know. He says he's Sam Wesson, and he started there three weeks ago. Dean is trying to process all of this. He says, well, you cornered me in the elevator and asked me about ghosts, and now, uh, And the more he thinks about it, the more crazier it sounds, and he can't even address it head on. So he changes the subject. And he's like, oh, so you started here three weeks ago? Yeah, so did I. Sam watches on kind of like what the hell is going on here as Dean starts drinking something weird. You think Dean would go for whiskey? But no, he's on the master cleanse. And he informs Sam that it detoxes you like nobody's business. It's like, um, yeah. Kind of ironic, since you're going to have to detox Sam from demon blood here in a few episodes. Ha ha. And Sam realizes, when Dean was in the bathroom with Ian, that he saw something. Dean's trying to deny it, like, I don't know what I saw. It was a stressful situation. Sam asks Dean, what if these suicides aren't suicides? What if there's something not natural? And I love that. It's not natural. (laughs) Almost supernatural, but not quite. And he's so close to getting it. So Dean's really skeptical about this all being the work of ghosts and asks Sam what he's basing that assumption on. And Sam's like, uh, instinct. And Dean looks like he's gonna kick Sam out of the office for saying something so impetuous. But Dean's like, really? Because I had the same instinct. Like he's almost ashamed or shocked to hear himself admit it. But this just encourages Sam Moore, who leans forward in his seat even more and is like, because those dreams that I've I told you about, that the dreams were about ghosts, and now they're encountering real ghosts. And Dean's like, what, are you telling me you're some sort of special psychic and your dreams are coming true? And Sam's like, no, that would be crazy. And it's like, well, Sam was a special psychic whose visions and dreams really came true. So how crazy is it really, guys? So it almost feels like that's another aspect of this alternate storyline that Zachariah has set up for them, that they're just gently mocking Sam or poking fun at him like, yeah, we know about your visions. We were responsible for all that. Sam said he was curious and found what connected the two men who'd killed themselves He presents some papers to Dean who looks at them and is like, so you hacked into their email accounts? And Sam tries to pass it off like, you know, I technically am talking to an upper management person here. I need to be careful how I phrase this. I don't want to get in trouble. He replies that he used some special skills he had to satisfy his curiosity. And Dean's like, nice. And Sam's a little shocked to hear an upper management person congratulate him for doing something technically illegal. 
Sam found that they had each received an email from HR informing them that they needed to report to room 1444. And even Dean immediately recognizes the problem with this. HR is on the 7th floor, not the 14th floor. So what's on the 14th floor that would be affecting these men? So Sam and Dean agree after kind of feeling each other out, like how serious are they about this? Because they're both putting themselves at risk by being this open about their what sound like wildly crackpot theories here. But they both agree that they're on the same page. They're dying to check it out and investigate what's going on with the 14th floor here. Some other poor schlub from tech support in his yellow polo shirt has been sent up to room 1444. And we see him going down this gray and dreary and kind of neglected part of the building compared to every other part of the building we've seen that's all modern and shiny and corporate looking. This looks like a holdover from a previous era of this building. He goes into room 1444 and it's just a storage room filled with shelves and shelves of old computers, files, stuff like that. He looks confused and concerned as he slowly steps into the room and then the door slams behind him and locks and he can't get back out. He seems to be alone and looking a little bit scared now. All the computer monitors switch on and display static. He starts breathing out cold breaths. Sam and Dean, out in the hallway, meanwhile, hear a scream coming from that room and run to help. Sam can't open the door, it's locked, so he just, without blinking, just kicks the door in. And Dean watches like, whoa, what the hell? They come in and find the guy in the yellow shirt pinned underneath a fallen shelf. As Sam runs to help him, Dean is flung across the room by a ghost. We watch it zap in and fling Dean, and then it shoves Sam away and holds up its hand, and we see the electric sparks, like if you think all the way back to the episode Asylum with the doctor who was trying to heal his patients with the electrical touch to their temple like he did to Sam in that episode. It's almost like that sort of mind control from a ghost. Dean gets up across the room, spots a big wrench sitting in a bag of tools on one of the shelves, and just as the ghost is about to bend over and touch this guy's forehead with the lightning fingers, Dean whacks him really hard with the wrench. And of course, being iron, or partially iron at least, it dissipates the ghost. All the monitors shut off, as if the ghost had never been there at all and definitely wasn't coming back immediately like we see most ghosts do. And Sam and Dean go and help free the guy from underneath the fallen shelf. At least he survives. Hey, he doesn't get mind whammied by the ghost. Sam asks Dean, how'd you know how to do that? And Dean's like, I don't know. So it's clear that they both have these hunter instincts somewhere deep down in them, but they're completely at a loss for any sort of practical information. And once again, we're reminded that it's not the ghost case that's the big mystery in this episode. It's the what the hell is wrong with Sam and Dean case. Later that night, they're back in Dean's fancy apartment. Dean is pacing instead of drinking a whiskey or a beer. He's still got his master cleanse juice, chugging that like it was going to provide him any sort of comfort or relief from the situation he's experiencing. Like, no, dude, I don't think there's enough maple syrup and cayenne pepper in the world to cleanse you of what's happening here. And Sam, who's in Dean's apartment for the first time, is like, man, I could really use a beer. 
which hilarious because it's usually Dean who's handing beers out in situations like this. Dean's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. I don't have any. I'm on this master cleanse. So instead of giving Sam a beer, he gives him a bottled water because Dean doesn't have any carbs in his house. The only food he's got visible is a bowl full of pears on the table. I think it's pears. So Undine-like. He's obviously well-to-do. He's got plenty of money in the bank. He can afford to buy whatever food he wants. And Dean Winchester, you know, would be living on the most Dean Winchester diet you've ever seen. There would be plenty of carbs in that house. No carbs at all. Not even a beer. Not any of the things that Dean normally takes any pleasure in at all. Dean has no idea how he knew that the ghost would be dissipated by hitting it with the wrench. And Sam has no idea how he knew how to kick in a door. This is perplexing to both of them. Sam offers, it's like we've done this before, which they have over and over again since the beginning of the series, since they were children, really. Sam says he just has this feeling that he's not where he's supposed to be, that He's supposed to be something more than some guy who sits in a cubicle. Dean's like, yeah, most people who sit in cubicles feel that way. Sam is like, it's more than that. I don't like my job. I don't like my clothes. I don't like my own last name. He doesn't like the town where they live. He doesn't like anything about his life here. And that's just so on the nose because I don't think Dean really likes any of his life here either. So, like, when I see people talking about how, God, if only he could have such a wonderful life. No, I don't think he likes it any more than Sam likes his life. It had to be uncomfortable, at least around the edges. Like, I don't think Dean would complain about making as much money as Dean Smith did here in this episode or having the sort of comfort and security of that guy. But all the rest of it, we know Dean doesn't like the food. He doesn't like the clothes. He would definitely not like the last name. Sam explains that it feels like it's just something in his blood. And again, ha ha ha, to be made to feel that way specifically for Sam when we're about to find out the extent of what's in his blood and how it got there. We just found out about him drinking the demon blood again in the last episode. But he says that he feels like he was destined for something different. And I hate that, destined. Because, yeah, Sam has already bought into the destiny thing. He believes that he has this mission because Dean's not strong enough. He ha- he's convinced himself of all of it. And yet here he is being held back from that, stuck in a cubicle because Dean needed this lesson taught to him. Sam asks Dean if he's ever felt that way. And Dean's like, I don't believe in destiny. But I do believe in what's right in front of us, though, and there's definitely something not quite right about what's directly in front of us. Sam asks what they should do next, and Dean's like, we'll do what I do best, Sammy. Research. Sam's like, did you just call me Sammy? And Dean's like, did I? And Sam's like, yeah, don't do that again. We shift a little bit later, and Sam's working at his laptop at Dean's kitchen table, And Dean is sitting over at his little desk over in front of some sort of exercise equipment machine in the corner of his room. And Dean's like, jackpot, I just found the best site from real ghost hunters. And it's the ghost facers. Now, we all know where the ghost facers learned most of what they know about actual ghost hunting from the Winchesters. But Sam and Dean 
ironically then have to learn those lessons through the ghost facers while thinking that it was the ghost facers who came up with all this stuff and not them who taught all this to the ghost facers in the first place. Conveniently, they were set up to have done this. But they follow the ghost facers' steps for taking care of ghosts, finding out who the ghost you're hunting is. And Dean identifies the ghost as P.T. Sandover, who started the company. He never married, had no kids. His life was the company. Sam finds other incidences of when people had killed themselves inside that building. 1929, at the beginning of the Great Depression. They theorize that this ghost has awakened because, remember, this was 2008 when they made this? The ghost comes back during times of economic downturns and does a sweep of the building because his company should not suffer. And 2008 was major financial crunch crisis time. Dean Smith here is all concerned about his personal portfolio. He doesn't even want to talk about it. And Sam just rolls his eyes like, yeah, corporate idiot. So they're describing Sandover as zapping people into model employees. And Sam's like, yeah, like Ian and Paul. It's like they became different people. Which, again, I will remind you, is not unlike what's happened to Sam and Dean in this entire episode, but also is not unlike how angels get zapped into compliance in heaven, and which we will see happen to Cass in just a few episodes. Dean describes the results of Sandover's treatment of the employees as turning them into perfect worker bees, which, since I also had occasion to mention season seven, quote, crazy Cass in last week's podcast, as fandom calls him now, Honey Cass, who's obsessed with bees and prefers them to angels. Kind of interesting that it was used as a comparator here. Sam also learns that the building used to only be 14 floors tall. The rest were, were added on later. But 1444 used to be P.T. Sandover's office, even though it's just been relegated to a storeroom now. They go back to the Ghost Facers video who teaches them about weapons you can use against ghosts. Salt. Iron. And then Sam realizes that's why the wrench worked against the ghost. The ghost facers go on to demonstrate the shotgun shell filled with rock salt, to which Sam and Dean are both like, how do you even get a gun? I think there's a waiting period. And it makes me wonder where the Impala was stashed away all this time, full of guns they could have used. After packing up their kit full of salt and iron and anything they thought they might be able to use against the ghost and giving up on the idea of getting guns, the ghost facers instruct them that they'll next have to burn the remains. Sam finds out that Sandover was cremated, so there's nothing for them to dig up and burn. But the ghost facers have an answer for that, too. You have to find all of their genetic material, hair, nail clippings, sweat, anything that might tie the ghost to this world. The thing is, that leaves out things that the ghost is just inordinately attached to. Not something that necessarily has its genetic material, but something it valued. Like Kevin Tran's ghost was tied to his father's ring. I don't think Kevin's DNA was in the ring in any way. I think it was just something that was important and special to him. So Sam and Dean go back to the office late at night. Dean suggests that they go back to the storeroom because... It was his office. There might be something of his still in there. So that's where they head. They're both examining all this stuff in this room and not really finding anything useful when someone interrupts Sam. And for a second, we, the audience, are like, oh, shit, no, it's the ghost. 
it's just a security guard who's like, what the hell are you doing here? Come on with me. We're leaving the building. That leaves Dean on his own because Dean had been behind one of the shelves and the security guard hadn't seen him. As Sam and the security guard are riding back downstairs in the elevator, the little video screen in the elevator fritzes out. And Sam's like, oh no, not again. Their breaths go all cold smoke and they're stuck between floors 9 and 10. But the security guard has an elevator override key and manages to get the doors open and then has to try and pry open the outer doors. He chooses floor 10 to do that on. The guy is like, come on, let's get out of here. Sam's like, uh, no, let's just wait. He does not like the noises the elevator is making. He does not like the idea of climbing through the open elevator door when the ghost has already tried to attack him once. He's like, ah, no, no, I want no part of this. I'll just wait here, thanks. And he watches kind of like anxiety ridden as the security guard climbs up and through the the open door. And we, the audience, are like, oh shit, he's going to die because he's struggling to like shimmy up there. And he's like half in and half out of the elevator. Back up in Sandover's office, Dean is still looking through stuff. And he finds a framed photo of a bridge that says building the dream with Sandover Bridge and Iron. And that's kind of what this whole episode is. It's sort of like a weird dream, isn't it? Back at the elevator, the guy is trying to convince Sam to also climb out and come with him. And Sam's refusing. And and the guard is fed up with that. He leans back through the door and is like, look, I don't have the rest of my life. And that's when the elevator chooses to drop, chopping the guy in half and spattering Sam with his blood. Yeah, he didn't have the rest of his life because his life was over at that moment. From his pocket, he gets the walkie-talkie message from Dean. Hey, Sam, you okay? And Sam looks the least okay that he's looked through this entire episode. And he's like, call you back. Sam returns to the cubicle farm, gets himself cleaned up, and then calls Dean back, who tells Sam to meet him on the 22nd floor. He thinks he knows the answer. If you'll remember, that's the floor where Dean's office is. Sam advises Dean to take the stairs. And Dean remembers an exhibit entitled Sandover Bridge and Iron, Building the Dream, about the company's entire history. The first Sandover factory, all the bridges and things they've built that we've seen in the background of every shot of Dean walking to and from his office in this entire episode. It was just a part of the background, but it's the clue to the whole mystery. When Sam arrives, Dean is kind of like freaked out. He's like looking at all the blood spattered all over Sam. And he's like, whoa, that's that's a lot of blood. And Sam is just like, yeah, I know. And again, the irony, because we, the audience, know Sam has been drinking demon blood to power up. We just learned that last week. Dean does not know it yet. But all of these jokes about Sam and blood had it all over his face and mouth in the elevator shot. He's still got some all down his neck and all over his clothes still. But Dean has no idea about it yet. So it just hits different when you know the truth about Sam and his demon blood and what the angels might be saying with this little message they're trying to deliver here. But Dean shows Sam P.T. Sandover's gloves behind some glass on display on this wall. Dean's convinced they must have his DNA in them somehow. As soon as Dean takes a fireplace poker to the glass and breaks it, their breath goes cold again and Sandover appears behind Dean. He flings Dean against a wall. 
He flings Sam against the opposite wall. Sam managed to hold on to his salt in his fireplace poker, but Sandover's coming at him with the electric fingers again. Rather than taking a swipe at Sandover with the very reusable iron poker in his hand, Sam chooses to fling salt at Sandover instead of building a circle in which they can stand and protect themselves from Sandover while they destroy his gloves. No, Sam just flings away half a canister of salt this way, which looks impressive and impresses the hell out of Dean, who thinks that was pretty cool, but does nothing to actually help their circumstance. They've got all the right tools there, they just have no idea how to use them correctly. Because unlike last time, Sandover comes right back. He's not going to let them get away with destroying his property. Sam spots him behind Dean and throws the fireplace poker at Dean because Dean dropped his. And Dean, without hesitating, just turns and swings, dissipating Sandover again. Sam is super impressed at how Dean caught the poker that he threw at him. Like, nice catch, good reflexes. They're both surprised by it. But again, they may be good with the physical stuff that's just like instinct reaction, but they're not actually getting it done. Sam gets up and comes back over and picks up Dean's poker from before. Instead of going directly like scrambling to burn the gloves like they would in a normal case when they're not totally lacking their memories of how to do this stuff, they're just like, holy cow, we're actually good at this. And I'm like looking at it going, dude, you guys are not good at this. You're not you're just kind of like messing around with it. You're not much better than the ghost facers. They do okay against Sandover for a second, but very quickly Sandover gets the upper hand and flings them both to opposite sides of the room again. This time he goes for Dean with the electric fingers, and rather than dealing with the distraction of just trying to dissipate the ghost, knowing that he will come right back anyways, this time when Sam gets up and sees him, Dean, about to be electric ghost fingered, He goes for the gloves, grabs the lighter out of his pocket, and flames out P.T. Sandover once and for all, right before he would have electrocuted Dean. Nice timing, Sammy. Then, instead of having any sort of negative reaction to this experience at all, Sam's like, whoa, that was amazing. And Dean's like, right? Right? Even though he's like sitting there like, I almost just died. Back in Dean's office, he gets out his first aid kit and they patch themselves up. Dean's like, I gotta tell you, I've never had so much fun in my life. He loved that. Sam agrees. He's like, yeah, me either. Dean's like, oh, it was a hell of a workout, too. Making the excuse that we always mock Dean and Cannon for eating, like, just garbage food and never working out. But no, really, his job is a physical workout all the time. Sam is like, we should keep doing this. I mean it, there's got to be other ghosts out there. And Dean's like, yeah, but how would we pay for anything? What are we supposed to do? Just live out of our car or something? Have no health insurance? And that's about all Sam can take. He's like, confession. Sam doesn't even try to sugarcoat it or make excuses for it anymore. He's like, remember those dreams I told you about with the ghosts? I was fighting them with you. Sam tries to explain their lives from his dreams. He's like, we were hunters and friends, but more like brothers, really. What if that's who we really are? Sam wonders if that wasn't who they were before they showed up for this hunt and the ghost just scrambled their brains before they could get it. That what if that is their reality that they're supposed to go back to? 
And Dean doesn't buy it yet. He's like, but the ghost is dead and we're still here and we still know who we are. He doesn't believe that the ghost did something to them to make them forget their whole lives leading up to this. And this just makes Sam even more frustrated. He's like, this isn't who we're supposed to be. Like, supposed to be. Dean's like, no, I'm Dean Smith, director of sales and marketing. And he goes on to list his family members, Bobby, Ellen, and Joe, his sister. Ironically, Joe gets the sister role now. He even went to Stanford in his little fantasy that Zachariah implanted in his head. Sam counters with, okay, but when was the last time you spoke with any of them? How real is that? And then Dean doesn't have an answer for that because he hasn't spoken with any of them in a very long time. He's like, you're just confused. And Sam's like, no, I only moved here three weeks ago because I broke up with my girlfriend, Madison. But now when I tried to call her, I get a veterinary hospital. And it's like, why Madison? Why Madison? Oh, the first woman he felt anything for post-Jessica's death. A woman he thought he could have and then couldn't. Who was a werewolf. Who nearly killed him. Ha ha. It's an animal hospital's phone number because Madison wasn't human. That's how the angels think of Sam. That's how demeaning they are trying to be. And I'm offended on Sam's behalf, honestly. Dean just can't believe that they've both been implanted with fake memories. And Sam's like, I just got this feeling and I know you've got to be feeling it too. Sam tells Dean, he's like, you're not supposed to be this corporate douchebag. That's not you. I know you. And Dean's like, know me? You don't know me, pal. That's the end of the conversation for Dean. He's done. This guy, this guy he's known for like a couple of days and shared this weird experience with. Nope. Sorry. End of conversation. Go on with your life. And we get yet another montage. The copy machine, the scanner, the pencil sharpener. And we're back to Sam in the cubicle farm, filling out a report. His two friends, who were the only people he really was friendly with at this company, Ian and Paul, are both dead. They weren't able to save them. He's kind of failed in that respect. The phone keeps ringing, and Sam has just had enough. He takes off his headset, picks up his iron poker that they'd used to defeat P.T. Sandover the night before, and just bashes his phone to hell. He quits. He's out of there. Meanwhile, upstairs in Dean's office, he's working at his computer, but he looks like he still can't stop thinking about everything that he's been through here. And his boss from the cold open, who had told him, good things, big things happening for you, now comes back. We know it's Zachariah. He comes in and Mr. Adler sits down and Zachariah's like, oh, you look a little tired. Are you okay? And working hard. And Dean's trying to blow it off, like, don't want to show weakness in front of the boss at all. And Zachariah's like, don't be modest. I hear everything. I know everything that's going on in this building. I know all about how hard you've been working. Which is ironic because we know angels like to peek in on what Dean's up to all the time. Zachariah writes down a number on a piece of paper, which says $50,000. He's offering that to Dean as a bonus if he agrees to stay on at Sandover. He suggests to Dean that he might even get senior vice president of the Eastern Great Lakes Division 10 years down the line if he keeps his nose to the grindstone working ridiculous hours for this company. And even after all of that... Dean takes off his earpiece, too, and is like, uh, thank you, 
but I'm giving my notice. He looks almost regretful as he slides the piece of paper back across the desk like, I'm giving away an awful lot of money, but I can't do this. Dean says, I realized very recently that I have some other work I have to do. It's very important. And it's like, well, that was the same phrase that the brainwashed people used throughout the episode. First Paul, and then Ian. It's very important with the mistakes that they made, like Paul trying to reclaim his daily work. It's very important. And Ian, before he failed the company, it's very important. And now here's Dean saying it right before he quits the job because he has some work that's very important that he's been pushed into doing. He looks around at everything and he's like this and like even to his necktie and he's like this. It's not who I'm supposed to be. Like he found those words because Sam had been saying them to him for the last couple of days. This isn't who we are. This isn't who we're supposed to be. What are you supposed to be, Dean? And who's supposed to is that based on? But the angels have now tricked him into thinking it's his own personal supposed to, not some divine cosmic orders on which they need him to act. And that's when Zachariah grins at him and is like, Dean, 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 finally, he's on board with the Spostas. This is what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to be. Zachariah thinks he's won. And he reaches across the desk and boops Dean on the forehead and returns all his memories. And all the bright colors wash off the screen and instantly we see what a sham it all was all along the entire episode as Dean is flooded with realization. And he is like, oh my God, am I hungry? Because he's been on that stupid ass master cleanse the entire time he's been here. Dean realizes very quickly that Zachariah is an angel and Zachariah is like, oh, hardly any old angel. I'm Castiel's superior, but after the unfortunate situation, his words, with Uriel, I felt it necessary to pay a visit to make sure you're still on the team. Dean objects to being labeled as one of Zachariah's ducks that he's trying to get in a row, and Zachariah is not tolerating Dean. He's like, no, we're going to start with your attitude. Dean asked if he was hallucinating all of this, and Zachariah's like, nope. Real case, real place, just plunked you in the middle of it without the benefit of your memories. All the rest was up to you to solve it, to get the ghost. Dean protests that, like, what, you just wanted to make us look like idiots? Zachariah's like, no, I wanted to prove to you that this is in your blood, that you were born to be a hunter, that you would choose it every single time. And in that respect, yeah, it sort of does prove that to Dean. Because at the end of the last episode, he wanted to be out of hunting. He was like, man, no, I can't do this. This is too much what you all want from me. Not that he would have walked away from hunting entirely, but he wanted nothing to do with all this apocalypse bullshit. Zachariah is like, it's not because what your dad made you into. It's not because God called you back from hell. It's because it's who you are. And honestly, he's right about that. This is who Dean is. He excels at it. But Zachariah takes it one step further. He's like, you will be successful. You will stop it. And Dean, that's when Dean looks up. I don't think he ever doubted his prowess as a hunter or his ability to continue hunting. 
He doubted his ability to stop the apocalypse or fight Lucifer or whatever. Zachariah's like, you will do everything you are destined to do. When Dean questions angrily, like what, stop the apocalypse? Lucifer, be specific. Zachariah's like, you will do everything you are destined to do. And it's like, no, he won't. That's the whole point. He doesn't want to do any of it. And he thinks your destiny is a bunch of bullshit. And he will prove that by the end of the season. He will do everything in his power to stop destiny from coming to fruition, no matter what it is. He will do everything in his power in season five to stop his destiny from becoming the vessel of Michael from coming to fruition and fighting the apocalypse against his brother who's been possessed by Satan. It's like, that's the destiny Dean has a problem with, but it's the destiny that Zachariah insists that he is not going to escape. It's frustrating that at the end of the series, after he'd fought destiny and fought destiny for the entire series, that Dean finally just collapses and gives in. Not just in the final episode or anything, but like even earlier on in season 15, there's this whole arc about it of him just being like, yeah, whatever, we can't stop anything. And just this nihilism in him. It's horrifying to watch. And it should have been the final redemption of Dean Winchester reclaiming his own free will instead of being like, well, guess we're done now, huh? Let whatever happens happen and, you know, toodles. It was just the most letdown of any plot (laughs) in the history of anything. After you make this the core foundational plot of your entire series and just are like, "Eh, nah, let's just forget about that part and just go on and talk about these brothers being brotherly. And it's like, why? Why? It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. Anyway. I guess that's enough whining about the series finale. Back to this episode. Zachariah just mockingly throws all of Dean's concerns right back in his face. You're too weak. You're scared. You have daddy issues. You can't do it. Dean doesn't like having all that thrown in his own face right here. He's like, angel or not, I will stab you in the face. And Zachariah just thinks that's humorous. But as we know, that's exactly how Zachariah is going to die. Dean Winchester is going to stab him in the face because he's a man of his word. Too bad it takes a whole season for that to come to fruition. But, you know, something to hold on to in the back of your mind every time Zachariah's smarmy little face is on the screen. It makes you feel a lot better. Zachariah gives him the whole, your life is great. You get to drive this classic car and save people and maybe even the whole world. And your life's not half bad. Look around. There's plenty of fates worse than yours. Like, at least you're not this Dean Smith guy. And the episode ends with Zachariah asking, are you ready to stand up and be who you really are? And with the power of hindsight, it makes me wonder if Zachariah means, are you ready to say yes to Michael when we come and ask you? Because that's who, according to Zachariah, Dean really is. Just the meat suit for his big boss. But that's where the episode ends leaving us all primed and ready for Sam and Dean to encounter their creator in the next episode, and Dean confronting his own free will versus fate. Would he have chosen anything in Dean Smith's life for himself? Aside from the money, probably not. But he would have chosen the easier life if he could just take that. But I don't think he really would have chosen any of the rest of it for himself. Yeah, he probably would have taken some of his suits and a couple of ties, you know? (laughs) 
No harm in looking good. Yeah, no, I think he's going to leave the master cleanse behind forever. Even though, ironically, Sam's going to need a master cleanse of his own soon. You know, demon detox. A little harsher than just, you know, purging the cholesterol out of your body or whatever. I don't know. I don't know how cleanses work. I've never tried one because that's crack pottery. Anyway, until next time, when we will be seeing exactly how Chuck the Prophet fits into this season's work in a timely fashion when we know who Chuck really is. What a great time for God himself to just pop himself into the narrative. Make sure Zachariah is talking to stuck. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at Mittensmorgel or at SPN George. You can find me on Discord at Mittens hashtag 4865. Or you can email me at Mittensmorgel at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. I almost did not record tonight, but today is my, that I'm recording this, not the day I'm posting it, is my 25th anniversary. So we went to the Renaissance Festival yesterday and had a lovely time. I felt bad that I was spending my anniversary eve recording this podcast, but we went out and spent the whole day yesterday doing fun stuff together. So today's just Monday. (laughs) and uh like eh, it's done so my brain may not have been completely on this one even though that there's a lot of great meta that came out of it and all of that's on my tumblr linked into my post for this episode so please do think about clicking through this week consider an anniversary present to me that you all will go and at least read a little bit of the meta that's been written about this one and Dean's position in the episode and what the angels are trying to do and manipulate them and free will versus destiny and who they're supposed to be. I appreciate everybody doing a little bit of the work this week. Anyway, have a good one, everyone.